You're listening to Aloud, literature for your ears, on CITR 101.9 FM. Hello and welcome to Aloud, CITR's literature broadcast. I'm your host, David Gertner. Each month, Aloud invites a Vancouver critic or author into the studio to read aloud and discuss one of their favorite short stories. Tonight's episode welcomes author and critic Daniel Heath Justice in Behind the Board. Daniel is a Canada Research Chair of Indigenous Literature and an Associate Professor of First Nation Studies and English at the University of British Columbia, Vancouver. Also the author of a number of books of criticism, fiction, and nonfiction and short stories, including uh, most recently the Oxford Handbook of Indigenous American Literature and Badger, um, which is part of a Reaction Books uh, animal series. Um, Daniel, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Um, tonight, uh, Daniel and I will be discussing uh, The Sisterhood of the Night by Stephen Milhauser, which was first published in Harper's Magazine in 1994 and then re- later released in Milhauser's collection The Knife Thrower and Other Stories. Um, Sister House also became the premise um, for Milhauser's 1999 novel, The Enchanted Night, um, and uh, perhaps, as we'll discuss later, um, the basis for a short uh, and a feature film. So, to start us off, uh, here's an excerpt from uh, The Sisterhood of the Night, read by Daniel Heath Justice. The Town Night after night, the members of the secret sisterhood set forth from their snug and restful rooms the rooms of their childhood, to seek out dark and hidden places. Sometimes we see, or think we see, a group of them vanishing into the shadows of backyards lit by kitchen windows, or gliding out of sight along a dark front lawn. Disdainful of our wishes, indifferent to our unhappiness, they seem a race apart, wild creatures of the night with streaming hair and eyes of fire, until we recall, with a start, that they are our daughters. What shall we do with our daughters? Uneasily we keep watch over them, fearful of provoking them to open defiance. Some say that we should lock our daughters in their rooms at night, that we should place bars on their windows, that we should punish them harshly over and over again until they bow their heads in obedience. Meanwhile, Our daughters are restless. Night after night, bands of girls are seen disappearing into dark places beyond the street, the reach of streetlights. The sisterhood is growing. Great. Thank you so much for that introduction. Um, To start us off, um, can you just tell us a little bit, uh, I guess, could you summarize for our listeners this story and tell us a little bit about how you came across it and why you decided to read it tonight? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a first-person narrative, uh, seems to be the father of one of the girls in the community. It's a contemporary story, uh, seems to be set in you know, small town or suburbia. It, it's hard to tell. It's, it's a little vague. Uh, but it's uh, a father reflecting on what's going on with the daughters in his community. And they're uh, gathering together at night in silence. 
and the rumors that build and the the growing hysteria about um, what is it these girls are doing by themselves and rumors of um, rampant orgies and uh, witchcraft and uh, all kinds of uh, unsavory doings between these girls, uh, all of whom are between the ages of 12 and 15. So uh, he is going through the reflecting on what's happening and trying to explain it to himself um, and trying to explain it to, to whoever the reader is of this narrative. I read this first when I was an undergraduate, mm. and I came across it in uh, one of the year's best, an anthology of the year's best fantasy and horror. Uh, and at the time, I was just coming to an awareness of feminism and patriarchy and uh, my own... Uh, queer sexuality and uh, my own identity as a Cherokee man. Uh, So in so many ways, a lot of the questions about power and the suspicion of power and uh, the the terrifying power of chosen silence, uh, all of those things just fascinated me and scared me. It It was a very unsettling story and one that I've come back to time and time again since then just thinking about and at the time I I had a pretty simplistic read of it uh, that it was a I thought it was just kind of a a story about um, young women coming together in their power in silence and uh, patriarchy Mm -hmm. um, oppressing them and and I think that's absolutely there but I think it's a much more complicated story and I think the, the father's role in in uh, reflecting on what's going on is really interesting, but it's also very subdued. So uh, when I was thinking about a story to bring, my my main area is indigenous lit, uh, but I also write fantasy literature. And uh, just thinking about the short stories that have been particularly powerful to me, the, the fiction that's most important to me has always been long fiction. Short stories I enjoy, but it's the rare short story that sticks with me. Uh, Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, mm-hmm. uh, Milhouse's The Sisterhood of Night, uh, and a few others, but almost always they are disturbing short stories. There aren't a lot of happy short stories that linger with me. Uh, and this is one that is so subtle. I guess um, the most obvious question, and I, and I mean there's no answer to this, but what what in your mind is The Sisterhood of the Night? We have all these different unfoldings, um, and... and and I guess the tag to that question is that does it really even matter what it is? Or is it the fact that it's elusive what makes this story so compelling? I do think that idea that he comes to about um, the unknown and the unknowable is is really central to that. That the, right. the Sisterhood of Night is unknown to the fathers right. and to the mothers. Right. Actually, not entirely to the mothers, because toward the end, he also makes the observation that the wives are getting restless too. Right, right? And the, the wives are being pulled in. Yeah, absolutely. So. so that there's this this sense that the unknown and unknowable isn't actually unknown and unknowable. It mm-hmm. is unknown and unknowable to the patriarchy. And right. even even a benevolent or ostensibly benevolent patriarch is still is still a patriarch. Um, so that I, I think that's that is an interesting point. And you know that it's coming from uh, a male author, and that the the narrator is 
is a man and is a father. And, you know, here we are, two men talking about <laughs> this this story. We are all talking about these these girls and women who are voiceless in the narrative mm. in a really significant way. Um, so I think there, there's a, there are a lot of ways in which it, it implicates different kinds of readers. Um, but I think especially for men, you know, whether we're queer men or straight men or fathers or, or you know, have no children, uh, there is a, there's a, a gap in um, experience mm-hmm. that the story speaks to and that unknown is not necessarily it is a it is a subjective unknown right yeah I'm wondering I'm wondering if that is part of the message of this story too is thinking about I think there's there's this compulsion in literature and certainly something we deal with working in indigenous literature too Mm -hmm. as this desire to know to consume and to especially with literature when we think about working with um um, first year students as well too that there is this idea something that you can take away yeah. from that story that you can know this story you can know Shakespeare it's just they want you to tell you yeah. <laughs> um, what that's going to be so um, is this in this in your mind is this story um, sort of taking up that motif and we're, and showing using the unknown as a way to push as, a, as sort of a, a lesson for the reader or um, I don't know if it's that didactic, but I think I think it does function in that way. But I don't think necessarily as as a in in a a lesson sort of style. Sure. Um, I think it just it interrogates our expectations mm-hmm. and undermines them. And there's no comfortable place in this story, no matter what your interpretation is. There's it's an unnerving story mm-hmm. for me. That it might be very liberating for some, but there's also there is a liberating aspect to that. And I was thinking a lot about just the power of of silence, and it's because it's the silence of the girls over and over and over again. This idea of the vow of silence, and they never explain who they are. They never tell what the secret of ni- secrethood of night is, mm-hmm. the sisterhood of night is. Um, it, it's silence about the silence. Too, absolutely, right? like how yeah. These silences are layered. Yeah, and then the the need for all of the men to fill that silence with uh, presumption. Mm-hmm. So, I think, and I think you know any any oppressed community has had to deal with the really complicated ways that silence works Mm -hmm. and most often when we think about silence we're thinking about being silenced we think of it as an an act of oppression Um, but there's also enormous power in chosen silence and the silences that we determine you know for ourselves kind of sovereign silence Mm -hmm. and uh, there's also that aspect of the story that really appeals to me this idea that um, these girls are choosing silence even together but silence is the thing that makes them the scariest to right. the patriarchs, right? Um, who have not silenced them, but whose whose own interpretations are silenced by the girl's refusal to right. to engage. Um, and so that, for me, I find actually not at all um, not at all unnerving, but profoundly. Uh, fascinating mm-hmm. because 
I've had to exercise that in my own life as a queer man. Mm. Um, and sometimes those silences can be oppressive, and sometimes they are they are the greatest example of of power that you can exercise. Right. Uh, when it's a chosen silence. Right. And I think I think it's also fascinating. I mean, I think we could um, easily say that this is a story about silence yeah. as well, too. And so how Mill, I mean, it's it's also, how do you tell a story about silence? Yeah. Right? Like, what, is it, what does it mean yeah. to take silence as a subject and build around it? I mean, poetry does that a lot. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a much more complex issue to take up in a short story where you have to have so much action all the time, right? Yeah. Where it has to be so... You have to just fill those pages with something. And so how this story works around silence yeah. and, and the uncomfortableness of it. And the un- and I think the uncomfortableness um, of, for, for the reader, um, uh, dealing with what that silence is, um, I don't, from either, I think, I'm, I'm not sure, but certainly from a male perspective, but I, just as, as a, from a readerly perspective, right? Like, yeah. what is happening? Yeah. Um, there's, I, need, I need to know what this is about. Yeah. I think it, it just... It really shows the skill of... And obviously, this was a subject he was um, um, quite interested in, too, to go on and build a whole novel mm-hmm. around this, too. You're listening to Daniel Heath Justice read from Sisterhood of the Night on Allowed Literature for Your Ears on CITR 101.9 FM. We'll be back with more from Daniel after these messages. Discorder Magazine has been supporting local music for over 30 years. Thanks to the long-term support of the Rickshaw Theatre, Discorder lives. Your favorite bands are playing at the Rickshaw Theatre. Check out their calendar just behind the cover of Discorder Magazine or at rickshawtheatre.com. I'm wondering, and we've gotten at this a little bit, and, and I'm glad we're sort of on, on the same page with it, but we mentioned how this is, this is a story written about young women by a man, and then here we are, two men mm-hmm. sitting in, in the studio talking about it, and almost sort of, uh, in that sense, we're perpetuating what the story is, Absolutely. is talking yeah. about, too, which I think is, is fascinating in itself. But my, I, my question in that regard is... Um, how would this story be different? It's an abstract question, but how would this story be different if uh, this was a, a female author? If we had um, a, a female name, would that? How would that? Or, or would it? Would it change how we engage with this story? I don't know. So if if Margaret Atwood wrote 
wrote this story, sure, right? Yeah. Um, yeah <laughs> right after the edible woman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that's that's a hard one to tell. I don't I don't know because I I've not read any of his other work. This um, I came to the story as the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like I said, it came to me at a particular time in my own aware, growing awareness of my particular kind of ma- masculine embodiment. Um, I don't, I don't know how it would change uh, being written by a male, by a female author. I think the the narrator, if the narrator were female, sure, I think it would be a, I think that would be the place that would be really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how that would. I would have to think a little bit about yeah. that. Well, let's um, uh, let's <clears throat> play with it a little bit more because I think it's. I was thinking about this question today, and then I started digging around online. And I mentioned at the top of the show that this is going. This has just this year. Um, it's still debuting in theaters. There was a debut last night, actually. Oh. Fascinating. So, um, but uh, as a feature film, um, but the the director of this film and um, the 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 person who helped her write the screenplay are both women. So oh, we get yeah. this filtered through this story. We actually get a chance to sort of maybe con- conjecture a little bit more on, on that topic. And it seems like, and the name of this, the director is Marilyn Fu. And she, um, basically she takes up this idea, but this is what, um, she says about, um, the film. Um, uh, so Fu has written, uh, The Sisterhood of Night chronicles three girls' unique and provocative alternative to the loneliness of adolescence and the digital abyss, along the way revealing the tragedy and humor of growing up, unprecedented in an internet age that is here to stay, timeless in its resounding of echoes and friendship. So uh, from what I can tell, she's, she's folded sort of the alienation of the digital era into this and cyberbullying um, into that topic as well. Um, but <clears throat> I don't. Did you have any any thoughts on on that? There's not a ton in that sense. No, but. it's just it's. Uh, it doesn't really gesture to. To, any of the disturbing elements of the, mm-hmm. of the story it doesn't. Doesn't really gesture to to the power dynamics. Doesn't say anything about the silence. No, in that description. no, it's very. That's very interesting. It's, right. Hmm. Uh, and that, um, just to build on this idea, I'd also like to play um, just a quick clip from the short film by Jeffrey Moss as well. So a male direct, going back to the male Going director, back to the male okay. director, but uh, the clip I'm going to play is, uh, and is it Mary, the character's name? Uh, Mary Warren, I believe. Mary yeah. Warren. So I think, interestingly, as you mentioned when we were beginning this discussion, that um, what makes part of what makes this story so interesting is that we get all these different testimonies we get one from a, a doctor. I, I think it's sort of explicitly named a doctor to give him authority. We yes. get um, two conflicting sets of testimony from the same young woman. Yeah. And we get testimony from Mary as well, too. But they're all filtered through this male narrator. Absolutely. And through yeah. the we, through the I. Yeah. Um, in Moss's interpretation, of course, or I, don't, I guess not of course, but his decision he's made is to actually have those female characters speak. Um, so this is this is the testimony um, from um, from Mary. I 
prepared a statement, and I would like to read it. It must be stated first that absolute silence is the rule of the Sisterhood of Night, and that any statement whatever about the society by one of its members is punished by instant expulsion. Nevertheless, the recent attack on our Sisterhood by Emily Guerin has convinced me that I must speak out in its defense, even at the risk of banishment. I myself invited Emily Guerin, who had been selected in advance by our searchers, by passing her our special signal. The blackened square that Emily Guerin so brashly displayed on television and referred to in her letter to the paper. It is also true that I met Emily Guerin at the Presbyterian Church and led her to a meeting place in the woods. But from this point forward, I cannot overstate how utterly false was Emily Guerin's report. It was a vicious, hurtful attack driven by an undisclosed and selfish motive. Emily Guerin failed to include in her letter that on September 30th, the Sisterhood expelled Emily for violating our sacred vow of silence. When informed of her expulsion, Emily Guerin became upset and threatened to take revenge. It is clear now that she has followed through on this threat with a passion she should have applied to the vow of silence she knowingly took upon her initiation into the Sisterhood. Do not believe the lies of Emily Guerin. Do not let her damage what has until now been an unquestioned and faithful trust in your daughters, who still deserve that well-earned confidence. I will not... So, what I... Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. What I think that Moss does that is true to the story is um, folding in this idea of mediation into there. Yeah. For, for the yeah. listeners, we have her giving the testimony, and it, it starts with sort of the... Um, uh, the cinema verte with it's just the camera single close up but then it quickly moves to the camera watching her being broadcast on television yeah. and then it moves further and further away so we see that same distantiation that I think that um, the author of the short story is playing with as well but that being said it's still we still get a female character delivering her testimony yeah. here so I don't know I, what did you what are your thoughts does that change for the the perspective. I mean, now we're talking about adaptation, but right. It, it, well, in in some ways, it does because we we hear her words from her mouth, and we we see her her anger, and we see her uh, defiance. But we only get kind of hints of some of that through the the narrator's voice in the story. So I think uh, it it is a profoundly different. Um, way that it works for for both versions, and uh, I mean, for me, I like the video one just in that we actually have her, and also um, for listeners, I think is that is that Emily who's watching, or is that Lavinia? Uh, that's Emily. Okay, so uh, so the girl who originally broke the vow of silence and uh, brought the the scurrilous rumors about the Sisterhood of Night uh, to the public through a uh, letter to. Uh, the local newspaper. She is watching the the newscast right. where she's being attacked, and you know, with very um, kind of, sh- she looks very shaken mm-hmm. by the by the thing. So we we're also getting kind of the the human a, a very human uh, account right from that, where we don't we don't really get much of a sense of the emotional. Uh, depths of the the young right. woman in the in the story itself. Because, because I think part of the intrigue too is when we have because we have the two testimonies um, from um, Emily, 
Um, but in the middle, there's sort of the bread and, and the testimony sandwich where yeah. we get um, Mary's testimonies in the middle. So yeah. we're never, and, and this is part of what the fathers reflect on too, is, um, is uh, Emily's second testimony where she reneges on her original one and says, I, what I said about the sisterhood is false um, and that uh, I need to, um, she's basically repenting. She's gone to the confessional. Yeah. to say that what I've done wrong. But we're, the fathers speculate that, was she under duress? Um, is this testimony, was this testimony given under duress? Is this truth that she's offering? Yeah, yeah. Right. And I, what this sort of does is sort of builds more towards the fact that she's watching Mary. She knows of the impacts yeah. in, in the film, I'm saying, a little bit more. Um, but um, what I... What, what are your thoughts on the, on the testimony in this and the fa- the way that it's picked apart and the, this sort of running thread that is there such a thing as, as truth in testimony? Can ever, somebody ever give accurate truth to an event, let alone this event that happens in the story? Well, I think one of the big anxieties in the story is, is there any truth in the patriarch's knowledge of, of women? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I think that's that's the biggest anxiety that's taking place in the in the story is that um, they're they're constantly interrogating uh, every explanation, anything about the girls and their behavior, their motives, their silence, their voice. So you know whether you have a testimony which is a voice mm-hmm. or the silence without testimony, um, it's always kind of dealing with this deep, deep uncertainty about uh, about the truth of, of womanhood mm-hmm. um, or the truth of the female, um, the knowable truth of the female from the, from the patriarch's um, perspective. So it's really interesting how that uh, continually, that anxiety continually bubbles up to the surface because it's, it's not really an interrogation of truth per se for the narrator. Um, uh, he has a pretty good idea of what truth is until we get to the end where he's really kind of grappling with the unknowable. But mm-hmm. even so, he is asserting a knowledge about the unknowable. Right. Right. That, right. that, that he's, he is saying, well, we all have it wrong. We're all trying to know. What we need to know is that it's unknowable. But mm-hmm. even that, that truth claim is presuming um, control. It's, con- sure. it's presuming a particular kind of authority over well, it feels it feels like um, I have my note in that when he finally gives his ultimate description, it, it feels like another kind of mansplaining, right? Yeah. Like he's <laughs> like this is unknowable, but I am so certain about the unknowable, right? That he's he's identified, made a very lucid um, interpretation, but then it is just is just sort of perpetuating this this patriarchy by being so. It just reminds me of. It reminds me of um, the psychoanalyst, right, and, and Freud yeah. and Lacan and saying, you know, woman is unknowable, woman is lack, but being so definitive about making those statements that yeah. it's, it's just sort of perpetuating that, the system that they're cry- trying to overturn at the same time. So yeah. I, it's a really the complicated layering of, of what's going on in that. Yeah. <laughs> well, and for me also, um, and I don't, we haven't talked about this yet, but mm. um, there are also really interesting ways in which um, indigeneity pops up in oh, the narrative. Right. Um, there's the so there there are all these fears. Well, it's a, it's the savage civilized idea, right? And again and again, the girls because they're always leaving the 
kind of the comfortable confines of the domestic sphere and going off into the woods or going off into cemeteries or going off into wild places, into uncivilized places, into un, um, undetermined places. And there's one point... I'm uh, sure we're both thinking of the same. <laughs> yeah, where, where there's actually a, a mention of... In, of why of of the Indian, but I can't. I have it. I have it here. Oh, what page? Um, do we? I don't know. Oh, I guess we don't have numbers, pages. What, what is? Well, yeah. I think it's it's interesting because it's in the testimony of the doctor. So the testimony of Doctor Robert Myers. Yes, yes. Where we get, I think, is fascinating in itself because this is obviously meant to be the authoritarian yeah. testimony that the fathers yes. still refuse, yeah. that they still find holes in. But the section I think you're thinking yeah. of yeah. Um, is when he is following the girls. Um, he's spying on them basically because he needs to know what what is happening. He's yeah. taken it upon himself to know, um, to be, take on that male, and 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 yeah, I think then we'll talk about this more. So, but this is his when he's sneaking with them. This is what he's thinking. So, uh, once in the woods, he was forced to ad- advance with fanatical caution, since the snap of a single twig might give him away. He was reminded of boyhood walks on the pine needle trails, which became confused with childhood dreams about Indians and hushed forests. Yeah. <laughs> and so that and then just all of the kind of commentary about their 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 savagery or their mm. wildness, all of the ways in which the savage uh, kind of bubbles to the surface. So these are also the the colonial anxieties of the, uh, you know, of of the you know the the Indian ghosts or the right. the idea of um, of a primal force that still bubbles up beneath the veneer of civilization that 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 the power of the civilized or mm-hmm. the power of the patriarchs mm-hmm. um, is always uncertain and it's always um, it's always just the surface layer because underneath are uncontrollable chaotic forces that the daughters themselves and the women themselves are are embodying right. by their by their refusal to be known by their refusal to be um, to be controlled right and and it's it's interesting that I mean that he explicitly names Indians and hush forests because this takes us right back to a long long history uh, in American literature, of the the Indian in the forest who who represents all kinds of erotic neuroses mm-hmm. uh, of colonialism, uh, but it also represents the the unclaimable, untamable savage other. Right, uh, and uh, just the way I mean, just the way that that I mean the the craft in this this whole story too yeah. but in this the section that i just read that um it's it's dotted with punctuation but he was reminded of boyhood walks on pine needle trails comma the, the, which quickly becomes with confused with childhood daydreams about indians and hush forests so it's like as you were saying this repressed colo- <laughs> settler colonial it just it rises up he's ha- just having daydreams about being a child but that is um, immediately gets caught up um in um uh, in a narrative about indigeneity and, and colonialism yeah. as well. He, he, it's like he can't 
it's like he wants to keep that part of the narrative down, but yeah. but um, Milhouse it doesn't let him. It, that it, like you say, it bubbles to the surface in that moment. Well, it's the return of the repressed, yeah. right? This this whole idea, but also the girls become Indians. Sure, the girls become, um, and and in a particular model of you know settler colonial mm. stereotype about Native people, they become they become savages themselves. Yeah. Right, but but not just savage; they become the wild world. They become nature. They become a an untamable other. Right. And so to to have that conflation is and I it's been a while since I've read it. I was rereading it for this. Mm-hmm. When I came up it was very jarring to come upon that moment because it's really it's subtle but it's it's kind of a bingo moment. Sure. <laughs> like whoa. <laughs> right. You're listening to Aloud, Literature for Your Ears, on CITR 101.9 FM, Vancouver. Three women, dressed in lingerie, were hanging from the ceiling on meat hooks. In an adjacent room, a man was in bed with two deceased females, also wearing lingerie. He positioned their arms in a sexy embrace. Down the hall, a man holding a chainsaw stood over the motionless body of a sixth woman, lying on a table covered in plastic. These are scenes from a popular music video by a Grammy Award-winning artist. If we want violence against women to stop, shouldn't we stop treating it like entertainment? Join the conversation at hashtag not okay. Yeah, I get uh, what I was thinking while you were saying that, too, is, um, of course, the idea that the the main sort of underlined thing here is that the the women might be associated with some kind of, of witchcraft. Yeah. Right. And, and what so, well I'm thinking of it too. I I just want to again point out the fact that this idea of savagery and um the unknown is made I think most explicit in the trope of silence. Yes. Right because nothing yeah. is less containable, less knowable than silence, right? That it is this thing that there is just no and the story proves it. Yeah. No way that you can contain it, right? Yeah. So it is it is I think in the way the most radical gesture towards that because it gives it gives nothing. It gives nothing to interpret. Yeah. Um, you can only build around it. Um uh, what I guess where I was going with that before as well is that a lot of critics and um Fu and her when she talks about this story too really connect this um, this short story um, and, and identify it as an adaptation or an extension of um, Arthur Miller's The 